0: Hi, Rebecca. Hi, John. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items podcast, bringing you analysis based on my newsletter, News Items.
1: It's Thursday, May 20th. John, what's on your mind today?
0: Well, now that the Supreme Court has agreed to review a Mississippi law designed specifically to challenge Roe v. Wade, we have to talk about that. We'll talk a little bit about the history, political history of that. And I also want to get into the politics surrounding the attempt to establish a bipartisan commission to investigate the January 6th attack on the Capitol. How about you?
1: Let's talk about the International Energy Agency report on the end of fossil fuels, which the agency says is coming sooner rather than later. Some people may find that surprising. Others may not. And I know you're curious about a universal basic income story coming out of Japan. So we will talk about that, too.
0: Indeed. But before we get to the news items, let's start with two science and tech headlines.
1: Sure. First, John, you type a few words or questions into Google just about every day, right?
0: I do indeed. (laughs)
1: Well, in a recent paper, researchers at Google make the case for letting you do this with your voice. You would ask a question, and an AI trained on all of the search results would respond to you with a voice of its own. Siri does something kind of similar, but the language models that power current products aren't good at keeping track of their sources, at explaining why and how they're sharing this or that information with you. If Google sticks the landing, this would be different, like talking to a super smart, deeply sourced expert. John, my observation is that voice technology probably engenders more frustration than any other modality among users in its current form. Have you tried to you know, call a, a helpline or doctor's office that has some voice-powered search function and you have to correct it? <laughs> Wait, I didn't get that. Would you repeat it? Did you say? <laughs> Did you say the picnic table? No, I said Pentagon. Right. I mean Google would need an order of magnitude improvement over that technology standard, right?
0: The customer service experience couldn't be more hideous. Obviously. That's right. Uh, but it is, you know, they've marched along at extraordinary speed and mm-hmm. you have to take them seriously because, you know, they have the greatest research and development arm in the world, other than, I guess, the Pentagon.
1: Yeah. Next, researchers from Sweden's Chalmers University of Technology have developed a lab concept for a cement-based battery that could be recharged. They start with a cement mixture, add carbon fibers for conductivity and flexibility, and equip it with an ironed and nickel-coated mesh. The energy density you get from this material is pretty low, but architects using it would obviously have scale on their side— The hope is that coupled with solar panels, for instance, entire sections of buildings could be made with material that doubles as a rechargeable energy bank.
0: In today's news items, I had one about Warren Buffett's company, Berkshire Hathaway, investing in a modular home company that, you know, essentially builds uh, houses, sort of containers, if you will, Mm -hmm. stacks them up one on top of the other to make an apartment building. And I thought, well, if you had these cement batteries, so to speak, to, you know, put between each container, you'd have a great power source and you could put solar panels obviously on the top.
1: Well, it'll be interesting to see what the cement mixture is that they use to make these rechargeable batteries, because the knock on cement is that it is a major global emitter of carbon dioxide. Yeah, right so, here, I mean, so. you have the, the energy technology of batteries that's making life less pollutive, but you use cement, which is one of the primary culprits. So it'd be interesting to see. But look, I mean, it's being developed in Sweden, so they don't mess around.
0: All right, let's move on to the news items.
1: It's been four and a half months since protesters attacked the Capitol. And Democrats in the House, along with 35 of their Republican colleagues, want answers. On Wednesday, the House voted 252 to 175 to create an independent commission to investigate the January 6th assault. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy did everything he could short of officially whipping against the bill to limit defections. But now the bill heads to the Senate. Minority leader Mitch McConnell has spoken out against the commission, and Democrats are unlikely to get the 10 votes they would need to overcome a filibuster. John, what is the end game here for Republicans and Democrats?
0: Trump, you know, doesn't want this. He's been railing about it. If he had a Twitter account, he'd be going nonstop between mm-hmm. 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. on the subject. And the Republican leadership... On the cusp of what they think is a recapture of both houses of Congress, don't want to do anything that will upset Trump. That's their Mm -hmm. calculation. The Democratic calculation is keeping Trump front and center is good for the Democratic Party. It reminds all of the activists, all the voters who hate Trump, that voting for Democrats is a way to express your hatred. So that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, I think they're legitimately interested in how it's possible that the federal government did nothing for almost three and a half hours while Mm -hmm. there was an attack on the United States Capitol. I can't imagine that if you're a member of Congress that you're not interested in that subject. How in the world is it even possible that everybody sat around and watched TV instead of doing something about it?
1: Can the Republican Party realistically suppress a reckoning on January 6th for an extended period of time? I get it that they're thinking purely short term and that they've got these midterm elections they've got to concentrate on, but that's a short term fix, right? Longer term, this is going to come back to haunt them, will it not?
0: I'm not sure it will. If we're having this discussion a year from now, Yeah. Will it seem like ancient history? And if you brought it up, would people say, oh, no, we'd process that. Don't bring it up. So on and so forth. I don't know that there is any memory in politics anymore.
1: Unfortunately, I think net, net, this may work out for Republicans, keeping Trump front and center. That may backfire on Democrats because there seems to be absolutely no compunction or respect for human life among these Trump supporters (laughs) who supported the murderous raid on the Capitol.
0: The thing about Trump is. To understand where Trump is at, he is very close to being indicted. Yeah. And he's very close to being indicted on felony counts. Okay. Mm -hmm. He's trying to think, okay, how do I deal with that? So, one Mm -hmm. thing they floated was that DeSantis wouldn't, you know, (laughs) wouldn't allow him to be extradited to New York, which I thought was the craziest thing I'd ever heard. But anyway, he's going to do these rallies coming up in June. And I think that he's going to use the rallies as a way to foment social unrest, let's put it that way. He will use those rallies to attack the prosecution, to attack the media, to attack the Democrats. He'll really amp that up. So we're going to be right back where we were last fall, I think, in the middle of the summer.
1: Mm -hmm. Really, that's alarming. So you think that this was not, uh, perhaps not an anomaly, but a taste of things to come.
0: Yeah. You know, if you're Trump, you're looking at an indictment. It's not like, you know, you're going to get slapped on the wrist and pay a fine. I mean, you're you're talking about the crossbar motel here. Mm -hmm. You know, when Trump is in real trouble, he doesn't say, okay, I'll hire some good criminal defense lawyers. He goes Mm -hmm. crazy. And he will go crazy over this. That's what the rallies are about. I Mm -hmm. mean, I'm absolutely certain of that.
1: Yeah. Well, the crossbar motel. Yeah, baby. A leisure property made for the man himself.
0: Okay. let's move on to the next news item.
1: The International Energy Agency, the IEA, has released a new report that outlines how the world can reach net zero emissions by 2050. And it's quite an about face for that agency. Ambrose Evans Pritchard writes in The Telegraph today that, quote, The International Energy Agency has switched sides. It has carpet-bombed the fossil incumbency that it once defended so doggedly. He has such a way of putting things, John. (laughs) The report calls for ending both fossil fuel exploration and all new oil and gas projects for good. According to the IEA, compared to fossil fuels, green energy will be cheaper, create more jobs, and strengthen GDPs around the world. John, I have a couple of questions for you. First, how important do you think this report actually is, given what's already going on in the industry and has been for some time? And second, what do you make of the IEA's arguments as articulated by the always passionate Ambrose Evans Pritchard?
0: I think it's hugely important symbolically just because the IEA, you know, its mandate has always been to ensure there's enough oil on hand in case of supply disruptions, such as the first Gulf War, Hurricane Katrina and stuff like that. So just the IEA saying this is a big deal. It's sort of a moment, if you will. In terms of the report itself, you know, getting there, everybody wants to do. The IEA lays out a case as to how they get there. It's not entirely clear, to me anyway, that their certainty is justified, but... Ambrose has been all in on this for some time, and the good news is, according to him anyway, that job displacement will actually be job enhancement. So if that's true, that's good news.
1: I mean, it's hard to argue with the economics. The energy share of disposable income would decrease by 50 percent, from 4 percent to 2 percent by mid-century. By that reckoning, it will lift massive segments of the global population into the middle class because their energy expenditure would be more or less free. Right. I mean, there is going to be this period of transition where oil and gas are going to compose some percentage of the energy mix, and there's still a wide range of speculation as to what that percentage is going to be. So there's still going to be demand for oil and gas, not least for feedstocks for petrochemicals. I mean, there's going to be a role for oil and gas in the future. It's just not clear what it's going to be.
0: There's a columnist for the Financial Times named John, I think, Dizzard, and he did a brilliant column on renewables as part of the grid. Yeah. And he pointed out that, you know, wind power being intermittent, obviously sun power being intermittent, it doesn't really blend with the coal slash natural gas system. So integrating these alternative energy resources is not just a matter of, okay, we're going to swap out the natural gas plant for a wind farm in Texas. Yep. It's much, much, much more complicated. Yeah, And that will be a huge challenge for the electricity providers everywhere.
1: Yes, it's not a straightforward swap out, but it's going to be an opportunity, though. There is technological and engineering innovation happening right now, being funded by extremely well-capitalized companies that are looking at those issues. The other thing I would say is that the approach that I think is different this time around from other periods of, let's say, green investment is that it looks at energy transition from the vantage point of multiple stakeholders, like going through a community and saying, well, sorry, you know, oil and gas is evil. And if you work for an oil and gas company, you're complicit with evil. And if you're financially ruined, you have only yourself to blame. There was that kind of reductive approach maybe in the past. And now there's more focus on retraining, mitigating the impact on the tax base of a community when there's a switch to a renewable energy source, looking at issues of reliability, Looking at issues of integration with existing energy infrastructure, I think there's a much more holistic view on the impact of the renewable switch. And there are so many economic advantages to switching to renewables that I think the IEA is just acknowledging reality and saying this is the way the tide is going.
0: All right, let's get to the next item.
1: A conservative opposition party in Japan has unveiled a plan to replace much of the country's welfare with universal basic income. Citizens, regardless of age, would receive between roughly $500 and $900 per month instead of basic pensions and child allowances. The plan by the Japan Innovation Party is part of a broader set of ideas for economic reform in an election year. Japan will elect a new House of Representatives and thus a prime minister in October at the latest. John, the Japan Innovation Party holds a very small number of seats, so this UBI plan is unlikely to pass, but you included it in news items a couple of days ago. Tell us why this is of interest to you.
0: You don't have to believe in the AI apocalypse to sort of get the picture that machines are coming to take a lot of jobs. Yeah. So, you know, guess who's bringing the machines to us? Silicon Valley, basically. So, not surprisingly, out of Silicon Valley says, "Yes, we're bringing you machines, and yes, we're going to take away all your jobs." I'm exaggerating here, obviously, but we have a solution, which is universal basic income, that will put a foundation underneath society, which is going to be ripped apart by new technologies. That's the basic idea.
1: Okay, so I have a couple of questions for you. Because when I read that this had been proposed by a political party in Japan, I was somewhat taken aback because to my understanding, Japan is the poster child for a demographic crisis country. They are facing a graying population and a labor shortage, not a labor surplus. How does this work out?
0: I think that the same forces of technology are at work, obviously, in Japan, and that this political party, struggling for some sort of message, has fashioned on UBI as an issue. It's also a way to say that society values all kinds of work, right? Yeah. I mean, a mother, she has two children, she stays home yeah. on purpose. Arguably, that's the most important job that anybody in that household does, is raise those two children. She's unpaid. Mm -hmm. From the Japanese political party, it's a good outreach to women to say, we have universal basic income, which values the work that you do.
1: Rather than intending to uh, put value on domestic labor, is it possibly a strategy to get people to, uh, I don't know, start companies or... Think, you know, maybe to to create some kind of innovation culture by encouraging people to take risk by sort of backstopping the risk through universal basic income.
0: Yeah, that's another big talking point, point. and I think it's a legitimate one, which is mm-hmm. you know you can take chances that you wouldn't yeah. otherwise be able to take. Yeah. So that's another big argument that the UBI folks make. And this will come up. I mean, Andrew Yang is running for mayor in New York City. It's part of his platform. It was part of his presidential campaign platform. As the machines advance, UBI will be more and more of a political issue in the U.S. I have no doubt of that.
1: Interesting topic. Seemed a little science fiction maybe 10 years ago, but obviously it's a campaign issue now, not just in the U.S.
0: All right. We'll take a quick break here to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be back to talk about our last item, the challenge to Roe v. Wade. That's emerged from Mississippi. Welcome back to News Items.
1: John, when Justice Amy Coney Barrett was appointed to the Supreme Court last fall, solidifying the conservative majority, we figured a case reexamining Roe v. Wade wouldn't be far behind. This week, the court announced it would review a Mississippi law that bans most abortions after 15 weeks, about two months earlier than Roe established. This law isn't alone. More than 60 new state-level abortion restrictions have already been enacted this year, most recently in Texas, where on Wednesday, Governor Greg Abbott signed one of the country's strictest abortion laws. John, where do we start with this?
0: You have to go back, actually, to the 1972 presidential campaign. Women's rights uh, was emerging as a major issue in U.S. politics and helped power George McGovern to the Democratic presidential nomination. Yep. In 1973, Roe v. Wade hit the tape, if you will, mm-hmm. and that caused an enormous political backlash, bringing evangelicals for the first time, really, into American politics. They really exerted influence in the 1980s presidential primaries on the Republican side. The Republicans were constantly promising the evangelical community that if elected, they would stock the courts with people who supported their position. And that promise was not delivered on what political analysts say is that Republicans wanted to tell evangelicals that the dog would eventually catch the car, but they certainly hoped that it wouldn't catch the car because if it did, there would be a huge backlash against them. So that went on for Republican administration after Republican administration until finally Trump comes along in 2016, arguably the least likely messenger in the world for pro-life advocates. And he says, I will deliver on the court. Mm -hmm. I will appoint Supreme Court justices who are pro-life. Lo and behold, he appointed two justices, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, who were at least open to the idea of a reversal of Roe v. Wade. But then the big one was Amy Tommy Barrett, which she was openly pro-life and openly for the overturning of Roe v. Wade, Uh it's astonishing that the only group that Trump did not break his promise to was the evangelical community. He absolutely delivered on everything he said he would.
1: It seems to me that the political evangelical right has one issue— and this is it. Let's say Roe v. Wade is overturned. There's really nothing else Republicans can deliver to this segment, right? I mean, is that kind of game over? Like, does this become the single galvanizing event for them? And then Republicans and evangelicals sort of, I don't know, they have to find some other new hill to battle on?
0: No, I don't. I mean, I think the opposite is true. I think having exerted themselves to the extent that they could get Donald Trump, of all people, to deliver three justices who were very much open to the idea of overturning Roe v. Wade. Once you bend something to your will like that, you don't say, okay, we're done. You say, okay, what else can we do? If they win on this, which I don't think they will, but if they win on this, then they will go on to other cultural issues. Religious freedom being, you know, the biggest,
1: obviously. Why don't you think they will win on this? With a court stacked in their favor and Trump having delivered on all these justices, why don't you think they will win?
0: Because I'm not sure Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are there for an overturning of Roe v. Wade. And Mm -hmm. I think given the precedent over and over and over again in appellate courts, lower courts, everywhere that said, no, you know, Mm -hmm. this is just a blatant political attempt to try and upset established law. You know, I have no doubt that Barrett will be open to overturning Roe v. Wade, but Gorsuch and Kavanaugh are more politically sensitive, I would say. And Mm -hmm. this is a big issue. If Roe v. Wade is overturned, it's going to activate Democratic constituencies in a way that we've never seen before.
1: Yes. Now, according to Pew Research, as of May 6th, the split in the U.S. population on the abortion issue is roughly 60-40, but follows very politically polarized lines. A 59% majority of U.S. adults say abortion should be legal in all or most cases, while 39% think it should be illegal in all or most cases. Do you happen to know, just roughly, does this reflect a fairly consistent opinion split since the Roe v. Wade decision?
0: I spent a lot of time on this issue in the 1980s, and Mm -hmm. my best source on it was Dick Werthman, who was President Reagan's pollster. Mm -hmm. And consistently, the choice versus life was somewhere between 55, 45, and 60, 40. And access to abortion, in most cases, quote-unquote, enjoys majority support. Depends, Mm -hmm. obviously, on what state you're in and this, that, and the other thing. But nationally, it enjoys majority support. So. Regardless which way it goes, it will be a huge political event. And if overturning Roe v. Wade is the outcome, u s politics will heat up exponentially. Let's put it that way.
1: let's say a Supreme Court decision likely to come in june twenty twenty two five months before the midterm elections.
0: yeah, they have hearings, I guess this October, mm-hmm. and then some kind of ruling is expected in the early summer of next year. so mm-hmm. We'll be watching it closely.
1: All right. That's it from us today.
0: Thanks so much for listening to News Items, the podcast. But you should also get the newsletter on Substack. Just visit newsitems.substack.com. For more insights into the global market of things, check out Rebecca's website, investableuniverse.com.
1: News Items is produced by Christian Castro-Russell, Pierre Bienname, Anna Mazarakis, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Our recording engineer is Billy Gardella, and we'd like to thank the whole team at Factory Underground. We'll be back Monday afternoon with more of the news. See you then.